A few years ago, HBO released a pretty gritty crime drama called True Detective, and it stars Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson as two detectives responsible for catching a serial killer. And towards the end of the series, I'm not going to give you any spoiler alerts, but McConaughey's character reveals his philosophy of human nature, what he views humans to be like. And this is what he says, look, everybody knows there's something wrong with them. They just don't know what it is. Everybody wants to confess. Everybody wants some cathartic narrative for it. The guilty especially. But you know what? Everybody's guilty. Friends, how will you escape the power of guilt and shame? Whether you're religious or non-religious, to be human means to experience these two big powers in our life, guilt and shame. Some of us, a lot of people in Christian circles try to suppress the feelings of guilt and shame by white-knuckling religiosity, just trying to be a good person. But more and more, what I encounter as a pastor of a lot of young people, you just dismiss it. You try to numb it, you get rid of it. But the big idea here this morning of how do you escape the, big, the, the power of guilt and shame presupposes that we can all agree on something, what the Bible calls a sin. Humans in general, and Christians in particular, have argued for the majority of our existence that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. Almost every major culture in history used to believe something was wrong with humanity or the world. Most people would have called it sin, the rejection of God. But in the 21st century, we don't like talking about sin, right? It presupposes that there's a God out there who has something to say about the way we should live, and therefore we don't like it because it impinges upon our freedom. So the mantra of the 21st century in the West is, no sin, no guilt, live your own life, you do you. Yet we live in a moment, I don't know if you're aware of this, that ironically cares more about justice. If you're under the age of 35, you probably care more about justice than any other generation before you. Yet you also live in a moment where there are no moral absolutes. So you care about right and wrong, but you can't define what the right and wrong is. And yet the problem of sin remains because even for the most irreligious Western person, they would say this, I still feel guilty. I still feel an enormous amount of shame. One thing that theologians, sociologists, psychologists can all agree on is that there is such a thing as guilt and shame. Humans do feel these things. Do you know the difference between them? Guilt is I've done something bad. Shame is, I am someone bad. In the Bible, the opposite of guilt is innocence. You know, so if you do something wrong, the opposite of that is doing the right thing. But the opposite of shame is glory. So living in a moment without moral absolutes, no one can tell you what's right or wrong, would seem liberating, but everyone would still admit we all feel guilty, we all feel shame. There's this atheist author named Franz Kafka. He says this, the state we find ourselves in right now is to be sinful, quite independent of guilt. Now I had to wrestle a lot with Kafka here. Like what does he mean we're sinful, quite independent of guilt? It's because many people have gotten rid of the idea of guilt, yet they cannot escape the feeling that something's wrong with them. Modern people have really, I'm going to just be honest, have screwed themselves badly. We don't know What's wrong, but we can't get rid of the feeling of something being wrong. Without guilt, we have nothing to do with our shame. 
Ernest Becker, in his latest book, Escape from Evil, this is a, a few years ago, he was working really hard to deal with this question. How do I, what do we do with evil in the world? What do we do with our own feelings of inadequacy, of shame? And Ernest Becker says this, the way we deal with our feelings of insignificance is we try to do something great. Let's try to do something heroic, something bold, something courageous. In other words, you know what Ernest Becker is saying? To get back to glory. To deal with the inadequacies we feel, we're trying to deal with our shame to get back to glory. The therapist would say this, don't feel guilty. Get rid of all the expectations. Decide who you want to be. But I've sat with tons of people under 30 who've been in counseling for years and years and years, and they say, you know what? My therapist tells me don't, don't, you know, don't believe all the things I tell me, but I can't get rid of the guilt. I can't get rid of the shame. And this morning, Psalm 38, this ancient historic book, is actually going to give you an answer on how to deal with your guilt and shame. The Bible will not allow you to dismiss your guilt and shame as if you've done nothing wrong. But the Bible will also not allow you to feel the full weight of your guilt and shame by providing you rescue from a, a better redeemer. So my question again to you, just for you to pose this to you, how, how are you going to deal with it? How are you going to deal with your unending guilt and shame? We're going to look at three sections here in our psalm. Look with me in verse 1 as we go to our first point. We need to first experience the guilt of sin. Notice that David begins, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come upon me. David frames the whole psalm in verses one through two. He's confronted with his sin, his wrongdoing, with his disobedience. In other words, David's experiencing his guilt and shame over what he's done. And he's asking God to turn away from him. And then in verses three through 14, David experiences his guilt as if it was like this sickness in his body. Notice with me, like verse three, some of the things he says. There's no soundness in my flesh. There's no health in my bones. We don't actually know if David is truly experiencing physical symptoms. You know, here's the reality. When we live in constant hiddenness, constant shame, the body does keep the score. It does manifest itself. We don't know if David's truly experiencing these things or if these are just symbolic ways for him to express what he's feeling. Regardless, this is one thing that we can all agree on. David's in agony. Agony over what he's done. Notice the language of verses 3 through 14. There's no soundness in my flesh. There's no health in my bones. My iniquities are so great that they're crushing my head. They are too heavy to carry. He says, my sins are like an open wound that are stinking and festering. He says, I'm laid to the ground in humility. It feels like my insides are burning. This is a man who's come to terms with what he's done and who he is. He says, I'm a man who has violated God's law. I'm a man who's full of sin, full of shame over what I've done. And look with me real quick in verse 9. The weight of David's guilt makes him sigh deeply. He says, oh Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. He says his heart throbs, his strength fails. There's no light in his eyes. Verse 11, even worse, everyone else knows that there's something wrong with him. Look with me, verse 11. 
He says, my friends and my companions stand aloof from my plague and my nearest kin stand far off. David, in verse 13 to 14, David describes his life as a deaf man, someone who can't hear. Friends, see the debilitating effects of sin on someone's life. And the Bible is brutally honest with our condition. We are all creatures bent away from him. We are our creatures bent away from God, the source of goodness, from truth and morality. And we have decided to follow our own lives, to reject the way of God, and our lives are ruined for it. Again, even the most irreligious person would, would say this, at deep down, I still feel guilt. I still feel shame. And the Bible will at least acknowledge for you this morning, yes, there is something wrong with you. Something's not right. I mean, imagine for a moment if you could just separate this from the concepts of sin just go to your body. If, imagine constantly feeling physically sick, physically unwell. And you go to the doctor and he runs all these tests. He does the blood work and the CT scan and all the different medical things. And he comes back and says, you're perfectly fine. But there's something in your body that's like, it's not fine. It's not right. You would still feel like, man, you're missing something. And even when it's scary, there's something deeply liberating when you find out the diagnosis because you know something's wrong. And this morning, if you'll allow it, the Bible's actually like a good surgeon is actually exposing you. And rather exposing you for your condemnation is exposing you for your liberation. You're finding out the diagnosis of your guilt and your shame. One of my all-time favorite quotes from G.K. Chesterton said this. There was once an article that said, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton wrote back and said, dear sir, regarding your article, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. In Christianity, you have to come face with, to face with this reality. I'm the problem. I'm the problem. In fact, you cannot truly be born again until you've seen just what is wrong with you in the world. You, you cannot see and experience the goodness of God unless you've tasted the bitter fruit of your own shame. And my question is, have you experienced it? And do you see your sin like David sees his sin in Psalm 38? Even for those of us in the room, maybe who've been Christians for a long time, do you mourn and grieve over your sin like David does? Or is it just this flippant decision? Some of us, I'm just going to be honest, treat sin like we treat offending our grandpa. Like, oh, you know, he's so kind and benevolent and lovely. Like, okay, I'm sorry I messed up. But rather, David comes to this agonizing position. Oh Lord, all my sin, my sighing is before you. There are a lot of unhelpful ways that Christians deal with their sin. Three ways that I think really quickly. One is a lot of people dismiss their sin. That's not a big deal. It's just out of here. They minimize it. It's not as bad as I seem it to be or they blame other people. So you might be thinking now, okay, <laughs> I come into church now, i just realizing this morning, I'm not very good, I have a lot of guilt and shame, what do I do with it? So you go to the modern therapy, they're going to tell you this, just get rid of the expectations on you and you'll get rid of your guilt, but that doesn't work. Here's where Christianity offers far greater resources than modern societies offer you. There is a way to deal with your guilt and shame. Not by dismissing it, not by minimizing it, not by blaming others, but what's the way? We already did it. Confession. Notice in verse 15, David turns to God in confession of sin. 
He has this long list in verses 3 through 14 about the way his sin is manifesting. And he says, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me. And then in verse 18, he finally comes to God and says, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. Notice where David turns after acknowledging who he's offended. Back to God. Verse 15, David describes it as waiting on the Lord. But for you, Lord, I do wait. Waiting on the Lord is simply turning back to him, realizing what you've done, acknowledging this is in your hands. David realized that his sin fundamentally was an offense against God. It was first vertical before it was horizontal. Anything less than seeing the gravity, the severity, severs the sting and the reality of sin in our lives. And I've met many, many people who come to see me after their life has been in shambles. I'm sure Justin could testify to this too. There, something's been exposed in their life, maybe a hidden addiction, maybe a secret affair, maybe they've been laundering money, and finally something comes out and they're in agony. They're distraught. They're full of tears. They're exposed. And you know what? I've seen two types of people that come out of those experiences stronger, healthier, worshiping God. And I see a lot of people who actually just go back into the cycle. And do you know the one thing that makes the difference? They acknowledge their sin to God first and foremost. I once had a mentor uh, in seminary who looked at me and said, very few people repent of their sins. And I was, you know, curiously, I'm a minister in training. I'm like, okay, tell me more. He said, a lot of people are just sorry for what they've done. They're sorry for the hurt they've caused. They're sorry for the consequences that they've come to them. But very few people feel the stinging guilt of offending a holy God and repent to him. So hear this, friends. It is right to make amends, to apologize, to reconcile with other people. But I ask you this morning, what's our motivation do you confess before you're caught or do you confess because you got caught? Tim Keller talks about a man who lived most of his marriage as a cruel, angry, vindictive husband. He always, you know, berated his children. He always talked down to his wife. And finally, when the kids, you know, graduated high school and college, the kids left the house. The, the wife finally said, I'm leaving you. I'm not putting up with you anymore. You're mean and you're cruel and you're angry. And the man said, what if we went to a minister? And got some marriage counseling. What if we got some help? And she said, sure. So they came to Tim Keller and obviously he was distraught. He was confessing. He was sad. There were tears. And after a few moments, um, months, you know what happened? The threat of her leaving was gone. And after a few more months, you know what happened? The man became vindictive and angry and cruel. Because what he was most afraid of was losing his wife, not about offending a God through the way he treated his wife. There's, a, there, there's things that can happen when we're exposed in our shame that actually make us more shameful. The ways in which sometimes we respond to our shame is not by dealing with our selfishness, but by going deeper into our selfishness. You see, what happened with this man is he said this, the way I want to live my life is I want to be selfish. I want to treat the people around me the way I want to be treated, but now I'm exposed and I can't do that anymore. So if I just play along then really I'm going to avoid the consequences. Really, really, who is he serving at the end of the day? Himself. 
There is a way to deal with your guilt and shame that actually doesn't bring you closer to God and the people you've hurt. It's actually just dealing with your shame by going deeper into your own selfishness. And so this morning, you have an opportunity. We all have an opportunity to come to God in confession, not for condemnation, but for liberation. Bring it all to him because of what you've done. You have a moment, an opportunity to come, as David says in Psalm 38, verse 18, I confess my iniquity. I'm sorry for my sin. But if you're anything like me, I'm a man, I'll just be honest, plagued by guilt a lot of time. You might have this question. If I come to God fully, if I confess my sin, what's he going to say to me? How's he going to treat me? How will he respond to me? And we can notice something about the character of God and how he's going to respond at the very end of David's psalm in verses 21 through 28. David says, Do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. We learn something from these two small verses about the character of God. And you may wonder this morning, just like the prodigal son did, how will the father respond to me coming home? When I acknowledge my wounds, my stinking wounds, all of my burning indignation, when I acknowledge my shame and my guilt, how is my dad going to treat me coming home? And David prays, do not forsake me. Do not cast me away from your presence is what he's saying. He says, even though my sin deserves it, do not cast me away. And friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, here is the amazing reality of the gospel. Because of Jesus, you will never be forsaken. And this is not cheap grace. This is not get out of free jail, uh, jail card. If you've been coming you know, for church for any length of time under Justin's preaching, you'll know that David's prayer is true for you and I today as a promise. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken in our place. David prays, do not forsake me. And that prayer is a promise to us that we will never be forsaken because Jesus was forsaken in our place so that we may never taste the full forsakenness of God. Jesus took our place, our darkness, our iniquity, so that the prayer of David would become a truth for our life. We're never forsaken. And then David prays at the end. Notice with me in verse 22 what David calls God. O Lord, my salvation, the one who rescues, the one who rescues him from the plight of his own decisions, the redeemer who saves David. What David needed is a redeemer someone to liberate him, a true and better redeemer. You know, I've sat with countless people who've said this one phrase to me that really is an indication of the heart. They say, I know what I've done. They'll acknowledge maybe their sin. They'll acknowledge their shame. They'll acknowledge all the ways they've disobeyed. Or, and they say, I know what I've done. I know that for God forgives me. I just can't forgive myself. And I've sat with countless people who said this, and no matter how much you uh, inject the gospel, you talk about how Jesus was forsaken for you, that he was cast on the cross for you, that darkness was taken for you. The gospel never penetrates to the heart, and I've been wondering why. And it's because their identity and their God is still themselves. I mean, hear that in the phrase, I know what I've done, I know that God forgives me, I just can't forgive myself. Meaning they have a standard, a way to live, they have a means of performance, And they aren't living up to it. And so what God says is important, but it's not as important as what I say. So the gospel seems compelling, 
But the language of I can't forgive myself means that I'm the ultimate determinant of my life. And this is how many people live their life. They deal with their shame by saying, I'll be a good person. I'll be a good mom and dad. I'll achieve. I'll go to church. I'll show up. And what reveals out of that is what I call your functional hope, your functional redeemer. You see, for every single person, whether religious or non-religious, we all have redeemers. We all have a hope, and many of us, it's not working. Really, what you're saying at the end of the day, when you say, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, you said this, I chose a way to feel better about myself, and it's not working, so I'm beating myself up with my own hope that I can't forgive myself. And so people might say, I believe in a God, but I can't forgive myself. What you're really saying is the biblical God is not my God. I need someone or something else to validate me, to forgive me, to give me my hope, maybe even myself. This means that this morning, some of us need to take a shift and to look. What am I putting my hope in? What am I trusting in and turning again to a greater redeemer? And so my my question for maybe some of you might have this this morning is, how do you do this? How do you do this practically? How do you walk in this? You're right when you say this, I know that God loves me, but it doesn't matter. I can't forgive myself. You have to this morning shift and admit it's not God who's my hope, it's me. And there are many Christians who've been the older brother in the story of the prodigal son who've been coming to church, who've never come to terms with it. That they're their own hope. And we all need to admit this, Christians and non-Christians alike, friends, the greatest news of the gospel that I can ever impart to you, God sees you fully. He sees you to the bottom. He sees every flaw, every iniquity, every wart, every stinking wound, and still loves me. He doesn't cast me away, which means then that my response to God is, I can't, I can't hide. I don't pretend. I don't blame shift. Because God loves me all the way to the bottom. And the way to deal with your guilt and shame is to finally relinquish control of the fight to deal with it on your own. You give it in to confession this morning to God. So some of you might be like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son who are far away from God. Maybe you wandered in here this morning. You come home this morning through the doors of confession. But some of you might be like the older brother religious, upright, moral, and you, came, you come through the same door as everyone else, through the door of the gospel. Friends, we all need a moment like Robin Williams and Amanda Plummer in The Fisher King. This is a little bit of an older movie. Robin Williams was a homeless man. He dresses up, he dresses up nice to go on a date with Amanda Plummer. But at the middle of the date, she says this to him, okay, one date was nice, but after this, I'm done. And he says, okay, why? Tell me, give me, give me more. And she says, because if you really got to know me, you wouldn't love me. You'd just leave. Everyone, everyone always just leaves when they get to know me. And Robin Williams' character has to admit, you know what, actually, I'm a homeless man, and I've been watching you. I, I, I can see how you kind of, you drop things easily. You're pretty clumsy. You kind of forget yourself a lot. I know you're, you're shy. I know you don't like yourself very much. And he looks at her right in the eyes and says, but I still love you. And you know what happens? She's transformed. 
And this happens time and time again in movies and Western culture because we need a love outside of ourselves that says, I see you to the bottom. I see all your flaws and all your faults, all your warts, all your wounds, and I love you. And Jesus Christ on the cross, friends, says, I know you to the bottom. My eyes see it all, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm not leaving And Jesus Christ says to you this morning, is there anything else or anyone else that you can put your hope in that will love you like this? No. And friends, it is this knowledge that will transform you. Recognizing that you can put your hope in a greater redeemer that sees you, has covered your sin and shame on the cross and has given you the promise from Psalm 38, I'm not gonna forsake you. I'm not going to leave you. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful for this morning that you've given us the great hope that though our sins are like scarlet, you wash them as white as snow. Though our sins are great, Lord, you cast them as far as the east is from the west. And Jesus, we're grateful that you were shaken for our sake. You were cast away in darkness so that we may never taste being forsaken by you. Help us, Lord, to remember, to cherish, to relish in that promise this morning through the broken bread and the shed blood of Jesus in communion. Would you meet with us this morning, God? Would you minister to us? Would you impart your grace to us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.